The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. It's time for Caffeinated Comics, a lively discussion and debate on comics, film, television, and collectibles, all fueled by the magic of Frappuccinos. And now, here's your hosts... John and Steven. Thank you. This is Cabinet of Comics. I'm your host, John Clark, and we are one week away from Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, so what better time than the true focus on Star Wars? Uh, so I have with me Jamie Benning and Justin Berger, who have written The Return of the Jedi Timeline. How are you, gentlemen? Great. Good to be yeah, here. Good. Yeah, very well, thank you. Calling from London here. It's the evening here. It's very hot, but we're, we're happy to talk about our book. Yeah, it's uh, how hot is it in London? It's like eighty degrees here today, eighty-two degrees. So it's quite hot for London. You know, we're not used to it. I mean, some people might say, "Oh, eighty-two, that's nothing," but we have like three days a year like this, so we're never prepared. Yeah, yeah, Justin, I know you're outside Seattle, and I was there once when it snowed, and the entire it was a, a state of emergency for the next. Right. <laughs> no, it's been pretty nice here. It's been weird though. We keep having like it'll be 82, 82, and then you'll get 57 degrees and rain for like a couple days. It's a weird summer. Yeah. But uh it's it's relatively nice here, I, I have to say. Like we're over the mountains from Seattle, so we don't get all the rain and stuff, and it, it's pretty moderate here. But yeah, the winters are pretty bad. Yeah, yeah. And uh speaking from Chicago, <laughs> I right. understand a bad winter. Yeah. No, I've been there, so so I wanted to get uh, right into this. Um, this is the second book in the unauthorized timelines. Uh, Justin, I know you worked on the Empire Strikes Back. Why was it that you started with Empire and not New Hope? Well, Empire is my favorite movie. And honestly, it was a labor of love. I really thought it was going to be a one-shot thing. I was just going to do Empire and that was it. I didn't really plan on doing the other movies. Um, it, You know, it just... Over time, you know, I got on Facebook and Star Wars was having its resurgence with The Force Awakens coming and all that. And I just really got back into Star Wars heavy. You know, it's always been in, in my life. But that time period, I, you know, started buying vintage toys and just really saturated myself with Star Wars because I was very excited about it. And, um, you know, I just I was going into Facebook groups and everything. And I saw all these fans who were just posting stuff you know, like call sheets and, and documents from the film, you know, like collectors who have collected all this stuff and then all these dates stopped popping up. And I just was thinking like, nobody's really compiled all this stuff into like a linear timeline to show kind of like, you know, the evolution of the film or whatever. And so it was just kind of like in my head, I just saw it as like a, almost like an encyclopedia, just like an, a timeline where you just have a date, a brief synopsis of what's going on, a date, brief synopsis, and just like that like in order as it happened and nobody had really done it. And I just kind of started collecting the dates and the info and putting it all together. And it just turned into a book. And I just kind of was like, I'm just going to do this. Like I, I was, I was part of me was like, am I going to get in trouble for doing this? And I, I just started doing research on, you know, unauthorized books. And there's so many out there, people have done Star Trek and, you know, Marvel stuff. And it's just, if you can do it like a reference book from my understanding, you're kind of protected by fair use. So I kind of felt confident in that I can do this and not get a cease and desist from Lucasfilm or Disney. And so I just went for it and I just, you know, started building this book and it took me about a year 
And then I just put it out for myself more than anything. Like I wasn't interested in making a ton of money, which I haven't and don't plan on doing, you know, having that happen. But it was more a labor of love. And so I started with Empire because it was my favorite film of all three of those movies. And it was just going to be a one and done thing. And I just thought, you know what, this is just for me. You know, other people can share in it and, and enjoy it. But, you know, I didn't really have an idea of doing more movies until... I mean, it, it crossed my mind, but I was like, oh, so much work <laughs> that I don't know if I if I have it in me. And that's when Jamie reached out to me about a year ago and he was like, hey, uh, you know, I know you did the Empire book. Would you be interested in possibly doing a Jedi book or were, were you going to do that? And I was like, well, not really. And then, you know, we started talking ideas and it got really appealing. And, you know, I'd knew I'd known Jamie from his podcast and just the great work he was doing in his film documentaries videos. And it was all in line with everything that I loved about filmmaking and behind the scenes stuff. And I thought this would probably be a good combo for the two of us to to team up on this. And so what happened then is we just started working on the book and, and just put it together. And it's been a great time just, you know, creating and diving back into return of the jedi because it was my least favorite of the three original films i I still love it but it was it was the you know the the kind of you know the ewoks and all that stuff you kind of like it kind of starts to go towards the the prequels and stuff and that vibe we we love it for other reasons as well right you know we love it for reasons that are to do still a great movie but we, we love it for other reasons as well you know the fact that we're of a similar age and it had that impact on us seeing it on the big screen as as kids and you know we've included that in the book as well in our introductions there's some photos of me at the dominion theater here in london about to watch it on 70 mil with my big bags full of toys that i just got from the big toy shop and um you know we wanted to bring all of those things together like justin said um that were kind of spread throughout the galaxy but we also wanted to bring that little personal touch to things as well yeah, now Jamie, uh, the uh, so the idea of Return of the Jedi came from you. Was that uh, was that a film that impacted you? I know you wrote in your introduction that you saw when you were seven. So I'm guessing you weren't quite old enough to remember Empire in the theater. No, I didn't. I don't remember Empire in the theater. My parents are not very good at telling me what films I saw before I can remember things. And the first one I really remember is Superman Two, I think. Um, and I certainly remember Return of the Jedi because I was, I was. It was my birthday and it was a birthday treat. I was being taken into London. I went on the train and on the tube and arrived at this huge theatre with this big marquee outside. And also, not only the experience of seeing the movie, but when we left, my sister and I were told by our parents that we were allowed to buy one of the books in the foyer. And they had the official magazine of the story and the official magazine of the making of the film. And I went for the story. My sister went for the making of because she wasn't as into it as I was. And then on the train on the way home, we kind of swapped to have a look at each other's books. And I kind of fell in love with the process of the film being made, you know. And I saw those names like Nilo Rodis Jamiro and Phil Tippett and Dennis Muren. And those names have kind of been fixed in my mind ever since. And I've managed to speak to some of those guys for my podcast, which is incredible. And, you know, only today uh, I got a message from John Coppinger, who was the um, animatronics engineer on Jabba the Hutt, who I've known for a number of years. And we sent him a copy of the book and he sent us some great pictures of him in his Revenge of the Jedi um, sweater in the garden reading. Um, And it's amazing that, you know, it's come full circle. I'm 47, just turned 47. So 40 years have passed. And now I'm giving back to the guys that gave to us, you know, back in uh, back in 83. Yeah. Yeah. uh, It's amazing how these just latch on. And those books, 
as you said, which is really what you two have created. Back then, pre-internet, those books were lifelines. You just read them over and over and over again. Yeah. Uh, you know, any I can still remember all of the adaptation, the Marvel Comics adaptations, because you didn't ha- even have VHS mm-hmm. uh, to buy at that point. So you just read those ancillary mm-hmm. uh, merchandise again and again and again. And that that became your touchstone. It's uh, it amazes me how often I find a Star Wars character had a different name or different pants than a Kenner action figure, because, uh, <laughs> you know, you you were able to see the movie maybe two, three times in the theater, but you saw the toys every day. Mm-hmm. And you were like, no, Greedo doesn't have a vest on. Those around the house is, uh, was really, really important. Yeah. Like with that, that's it, you know, pre VHS and it didn't, and it wasn't shown on TV here until the late eighties in the UK. So, it was the books, it was the comics, and you delved into those things. And our appreciation for these films just seems to grow and grow over the years. You know, I've gone through so many different phases with the films. Like, as Justin mentioned, I've made videos, I made a feature length, what I call a filmumentary about Return of the Jedi called Returning to Jedi. And that was a way for me to not only learn how to edit, but it was a, just a project that I found joyful to do. And it's been the same with this book. And we've managed to find out things that, you know, probably were in a book somewhere on a shelf, but they weren't in any sort of chronological order. So in, in the Rinsler book, which of course is like the the golden standard of making of books, you'll see that X happened and Y happened, but sometimes it's not until you present them in a particular fashion that the the tr- a different meaning kind of reveals itself, you know. So one of the examples I can think of in our book is on the first day of shooting at Elstree when they're doing the now deleted sandstorm scene. Um, they were they were rehearsing the Ewoks over on another stage, you know, at the, on the same day. So you get this kind of idea of this this kind of machine moving forward and uh, this kind of unstoppable machine, you know, they've got to reach their targets and things. And then I recreated or we recreated the Elstree Studios plan. So you can go, oh, there was Studio 6 and there was Studio 5. So that's where they were doing that. And you can pull all these things together. So we really do want people to use it as a reference book. And in fact, one of the people I sent a copy to... Brandon, who runs the Talking Bay 94 podcast, he said, I've had it like an hour and I've already used it as research material for a podcast I have coming up, you know, and that's what we want. We want people to be able to put it on their shelves next to those books we know and love, The Art of Return of the Jedi, Rinsler's book, the John Peacher book, and pull it off the shelf, read it cover to cover if they want, or if they want to just dip in and out of it, if they want to find their birthday in it, you know, um, it's it's a it's a resource that we want people to use. Yeah, I feel like uh, Return of the Jedi is probably the least researched of the three. I know, at, uh, as you said, Justin, it's uh, not only is it your least favorite; it's a lot of people's least favorite of the original trilogy. So I think yeah. it has less attention than uh, New Hope or Empire Strikes Back. But also, at the time when it came out, it was put out as the end. So mm-hmm. I think a yeah. lot of people. I know I was uh, I was eleven when it came out, and I was obsessed with Star Wars and Empire. And I remember a feeling when I left the theater going, well, I don't have to think about it anymore. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's over. It's done. I'll start yeah. reading Marvel comics. I'll start watching Star Trek more. Um, <laughs> so I, I feel like there's probably a lot of stories and a lot of things you two found that, that people don't know. What were the, what were some of the most surprising things you found researching this? I think, I mean, not a lot. I mean, everything's, I mean, it's Star Wars. Everything's been researched to death and and regurgitated in so many different ways. But 
I think for me, one of the biggest things, which I found in Rinsler's book, was there is a deleted scene of Luke building his lightsaber on Tatooine. And it's actually on YouTube now. You can watch it. And um, Luke Skywalker in that scene is not Mark Hamill. It's actually uh, it's, it's actually an assistant cameraman named Randy Johnson, who actually has a great resemblance to Mark Hamill down to the cleft in the chin. And if you look at that scene, it actually they kind of put the hood over his head and you can't you can only see this much of his face. You can't see his eyes or anything because it wasn't Mark Hamill. And so that was interesting because um, Lucas had actually brought that out when they did this big Blu-ray release, I think, at a Comic-Con. And mm. I don't even remember what year it was, 2000 something. And it's um, in the book. It's in the book. Get the book. <laughs> Probably but, the uh, while you write things down because you can't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. You're not always going to remember. I have too much stuff in my head anyway. But anyways, it was just fascinating to learn that because, you know, it's you just don't you assume, oh, it's Mark Hamill, you know, and then Mark Hamill did an interview and he's like, yeah, I don't remember shooting that. And he's like, you know, they do pickup shots all the time without us and blah, blah, blah. And, and then you find out and Rensselaer doesn't come out explicitly and state it, but there's photos of Randy Johnson basically sitting in that position without the hood on. And then they, they talk about how Randy Johnson was used for other shots as a stand-in for Mark Hamill. So you just kind of put two and two together. And that's really what this book was about, too. Also was just, you know, becoming archaeologists and digging up information and corroborating facts and making sure, well, is that really true? Because, you know, Lucasfilm, especially George Lucas, like to revise history, as we all know, and, <laughs> and kind of change the reality of things uh, to make it seem like he had some grandiose plan in place when I feel like he was in some ways flying by the seat of his pants, but that's fine. You know, he could, I don't have a problem with that, but it's just when you're trying to track down what actually happened, uh, it, it can take some research and some time, which is what we did. I mean, we spent a year on this book and we really did our due diligence and we, you know, there were, when there's certain things that just kind of didn't jive with other sources, you kind of have to, like I said, you know, kind of do some corroboration and, and uh, you become a historian of sorts of Star Wars. Mm. And it's fun. You know, it's enjoyable, but it's a lot of work, you know. And I just, we really made an attempt to make this book as accurate as possible with as many facts as possible and tried to stay away from things that we weren't either weren't sure about or couldn't be uh, 100% verified. Yeah. One of the things that I uh, think of when, when you ask that question is I because just to state here really that this is not just about the production of the movie all right we do have pre-production production and post-production but we have everything up until the 40th anniversary so it's 76 to 2023 76 being the first incarnation of Jabba the Hutt which of course played a big role in Return of the Jedi you know the human uh, Declan Mulholland character um all the way up to the Doctor Who character yeah and and then all the way up to 2023, you know, the 40th anniversary and, and, and everything that we could find in between. And one of the things that stood out to me was the the trial of this guy who was claiming he invented Ewoks and it carried on through over the years. And then there was an actual trial that George Lucas and Lucasfilm attended in uh, in Canada. And there's some stills of George, you know, being surrounded by press. And there's even the artist's impression of what was going on in the court and you know, eventually Lucasfilm won out, but there's something I had no idea. I didn't know they were fighting Ewok battles into the nineties, you know, um, they were long gone by then, um, you know, from, from the public consciousness, I guess. Um, but it's those little details that, you know, I, I really find fan, uh, fascinating because I've, as I said, I've done so much research on Return of Jedi. I've read so many books on it. So to find something that was new to me was interesting. And I'm, I, I just saw a review that we got on, uh, Amazon, 
um, one of our five-star five reviews. We're getting only five-star re reviews, which is great. This guy said, I, um, I thought I knew everything about Return of the Jedi, but these guys win. They found things that I never even could have thought of. So hopefully for everybody, there'll be something in there that they are surprised by. Yeah, were there major legends that, uh, that you two were able to debunk? Or as you said, Justin, there were things you couldn't verify, so you weren't going to claim. Are there things that we all think happened that you found out didn't really happen or happened in a very different way? I don't think so. I, I no. mean, there's, there's no like earth shattering revelations like, oh, Carrie Fisher and George Lucas had an affair. Like, or, <laughs> you know, there's nothing strange or, or bizarre or just out of the world, out of this world that you're just like, oh, wow. It was, you know, like I said, this stuff has been picked over so much that, you know, it just comes down. It's little nuances that you find out that, yeah, like the things we've talked about that are really the, the things that, that, surprise you i guess but yeah there's no major revelations or anything like that if somebody's looking for some smoking gun of something it's like you're not going to find it unfortunately but you know there's there's so much great content in the book you know it doesn't need that it really doesn't yeah. you know it's it's just it it's really in the is. detail isn't it i think i think it's in the detail for sure. sorry to jump but, in i just wanted well, to bring no, up the fact that yeah. we've got we've got an exclusive uh <clears throat> two exclusive crew diaries in the book as well so Dave Barclay, who was uh, the Yoda puppeteer on Empire, age 19. Um, he then became chief puppeteer on Jabba the Hutt and then worked on Yoda again for Return of the Jedi. He's a friend of mine. I've known him for a number of, well, over a decade now. I did a short documentary on him, which you can still find on Vimeo. Uh, it's called Do or Do Not. And um, he said, oh, I, I met up with him in Los Angeles. I was out there working on a, another project of mine, a documentary, and we had breakfast together. And he said, oh, I found this old diary of mine, you know, and it says... You know, on this day we did this, on this day we did that. It's not a kind of emotional diary, but it's, mm -hmm. you know, we were working on Jabba today and it really wasn't working out. We've got so much work to do, you know, and then Tuesday, meet Steve, you know. And you're like, well, okay, we can ignore that one. But there's so many little details in this book with those diaries that, that just breathe a bit of life into some of the, the sort of harder facts. And we also got Jim Bloom, who was a co-producer on Return of the Jedi, to do the introduction for us. I'd interviewed Jim for my podcast He's a good talker. I ended up doing a double episode with him. And I said, would you be interested in writing the introduction? We only need like 500 words. And he wrote something like 1500 and gave us a real sense of what it was like working on that movie, but also gave us some really nice kind of feedback about the book. And he described how we've managed to sort of peel away the glamour of movie making to show the kind of bare bones of a movie's production and and its life once it uh, you know enters into the public domain, and um, that was a real big big coup for us to get you know such a big name on that. And we've had a we did a special episode of my podcast with Jim talking about his time on Jedi. He's then given me a load of details of people who worked on Jedi who've got paperwork that we weren't able to get in the book because I mean there wasn't time. We'd already published it by this time. So that's the thing with these projects, you know. There's always something else that you could you could put in there. But we set our release date for the 40th anniversary and uh, with a few little issues with Amazon printing being a bit late, we did manage to get it out within a week of that. So, yeah, it's available now for everyone to buy and um, hopefully they'll they'll enjoy those little embellishments we've added with the interviews and the oh yeah, podcast interview snippets in there as well. Um, so I've interviewed like people like Nilo Rodis Jamiro and Tim Rose, who worked on the film, and we've put little snippets of those interviews um, from my podcast in there as well just to kind of again just add that human element and um, 
yeah, I'm 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 super proud of the book. I went to a friend's house today who did the cover for us, um, which you can, if you're watching on video, you can see behind me and now in front of me. Um, and he picked it up and he said, guys, you've, you've done such a good job. And it's so cool to have something that I would buy with with my name on it and my friend Justin's name on it. You know, it's it's the coolest thing. Yeah. Now, uh, Justin, you said following this uh, from Empire, these, these two mm -hmm. films are very different films. And you, yeah. Two are taking a very ground level looking at this, you know, a day by day. But do you get a different feeling from this book than you got from the Empire book? Did, did it feel like, well, Lucasfilm did it this way, we're, they're doing it again? Or did it feel like there was a, a much different mood to the to the pre-production and post-production on this film? Yeah, and I think that's it's been, you know, Rinsler did a really good job with it. But it, it, Jedi, I think, was more you know, Empire got away from Lucas, you know, where you had Kirshner and Kurtz were just off on their own in London and they were, you know, weeks over <laughs> what their scheduled production was. And, you know, he had to, Lucas had to step in and come back and say, okay, guys, I'm running out of money here. This type, like he was really, I felt like Lucas, I think Lucas was happy to be hands off because he had so many problems on Star Wars. Like he didn't want to direct, he didn't want to write and all that stuff. And he ended up writing it, but, or co part, partly writing it, but um, with Jedi, I think Lucas kind of stepped in more, took over, which is partly why I think he brought in Richard Marquand for different reasons. I think Richard Marquand, he wanted somebody who wasn't union. He wanted somebody who was a good visual storyteller, which Richard Marquand was for sure. And um, so you just kind of see Lucas way more involved than you did in Empire. I mean, Lucas was really involved in Empire's post-production as far yeah. as, you know, all the effects and the models and all that stuff. And, and it was really the on location stuff lucas was kind of detached from it because he was very much kind of leaving it up to them but when they started going over he had to step in and be like okay guys and in my opinion it made for a better movie because because lucas wasn't as involved and and that's no diss to lucas it's just kirshner kurtz i thought did a really good job of of telling a story that was really character based and and really you know like you kind of got some really good moments with these characters. Whereas Jedi is just really fast paced. I mean, you're just boom, boom, boom onto the next thing. And that's always, you know, as we learn, you know, reading these interviews with George Lucas and even Jim Bloom telling us, Lucas is all about story and moving the story along and not worrying about, you know, like, you know, I think Lucas even said this in this from star Wars to Jedi documentary. He's like, you know, people will build these locations and these sets and they want to spend a lot of time on them because they want to show off their work. And Lucas wasn't about that. He's just like, look, you know, the sets need to look good, but we're not going to spend a lot of time here. Uh, we just want to keep the story moving. And so I, I think that is definitely a factor in that Lucas, you know, and you can kind of see that in Star Wars as well. But I, I think with Lucas kind of stepped back from Empire, it kind of let things breathe. And I think that even though they went over uh, Kurtz or yeah, Kurtz and Kirsch really made a great movie, which is why it's my favorite. Cause I really think it, it, kind of slows down and gets you into some nuances and minutiae of star wars characters and then jedi picks up and you're just boom you're off to tatooine you're off to endor you're just like non-stop action and and it's a great movie i still really enjoy jedi and i think it's really good but that to me would be the biggest difference that i saw whereas lucas was a lot more hands-on on jedi and and really stepped in there was even a cut that Marquand had done of the film and Lucas basically took over editing at that point and said, this doesn't really have the feel of star Wars. And he wasn't really happy with it. So Lucas pretty much stepped in at that point and just kind of cut the film himself. 
Yeah, and then the famous Black Friday where they removed, yeah. uh, Lucas just called out and said to the ILM guys, I'm removing X amount of shots. And it was a hell of a lot of work that Ken Roust and Richard Edland had put in. And they all just went for a drink, I think, is the is the diary entry there. Um, yeah, they, got, they were pissed because he, he just... He's just next to 100 effect shots, and they call it Black Friday. And wow. Rensler talks about it, and there's a couple other places that have talked about it. But, yeah, it's just Lucas was just cutthroat. He's just like, okay, well, we're next. And these guys spent all this time and, you know, months pouring over these these shots or working on these shots. And it's just Lucas comes in and is like, nope, they're gone. So these were shots that were mostly completed? Mm-hmm. As, far as, as far as I can know. There's not a ton of information about it, but from what we yeah. can find, yeah. I mean, they were pretty much at least near completion or on their way, if not already done. And Lucas was just like, nope, I'm getting rid of these. We don't need them. And it's kind of fascinating to see at what time, you know, what point in the process that happened. And also things like, you know, how late on the score is recorded. Mm -hmm. And, you know, these final alterations that are being made to the film, the mix, you know, um, going into post-production on the audio and just how late some of these things can be. I mean, these days, you know, I've spoken to some VFX supervisors recently who said, days before films are released they can still tweak things now because of the digital pipeline you know back then they had to think optically on all of this and i think that's another thing about return of the jedi it is kind of the 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 ceiling in terms of what optical effects could do in many ways you know there's some of the most complicated shots ever put on film optically to this day they certainly were at the time as well um and what's been great um as well is getting this book into the hands of some of those people that have been involved in it like Craig Barron was one of those guys um who's bought a copy um he was one of the uh guys looking after the map paintings and he in fact dressed as Darth Vader at one point to do a scene of Vader leaving the shuttle because no one else was available um and you know we've had Mike Pangrazio the great map painter helping us kind of push the book on social media as well um and just looking at their involvement and when you know they're part of the puzzle was created i just find it fascinating i even now as a viewer myself because as justin said you don't retain all of this stuff you know it's uh that's why we write it down as you said john um and i found myself already in the last couple of weeks since i've had it in my hands going back (laughs) and kind of saying oh yeah that happened then okay and each time it gives you a new perspective you know because of external things and 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 the references are a big thing for us as well you know we want to make sure that these are all properly cited so you can go into the back of the book and you can go oh this was from here and that was from there so if you do want to go and on a a bigger deep dive on that particular subject you can do that as well so uh you know it's a it's a starting point for for many people um hopefully in the future using this as a as a tool as i keep saying yeah it's interesting we've been reading so many articles lately about uh cg animators about Mm. long hours and Mm -hmm. our schedules and things changing at the last minute there was just an article i believe in variety yesterday about across the spider-verse about how things have changed uh and you would think that's a new development because of digital but as you're saying you know like the black friday stories like Mm. that has always happened Mm it's just just, are you in your cubicle in front of a screen or are you painting a miniature yeah. Exactly. These guys have always talked about, you know, working long hours. I mean, Phil Tippett's talked about it, you know, Ken Ralston, all these guys were just like, you know, we would work, you know, towards the end, you're working six days a week, you know, 12 hour days or more trying to get these shots done. And it's just like, this is nothing new. It's mm. just like you said, it's a different format. It's a different, you know, it's a different arena, you know, they're at computers working rather than, you know, building a model or doing optical printing or whatever it was. So it's, it's, 
it's always been like that. I mean, yeah. and, and movies have always been about, you know, crunch time. You just read all these behind the scenes, almost every movie. They're just like, Oh yeah, we were running out of time and we had to get this shot done. And it's just, you know, it's always been like, go, 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 go. So it's, it's yeah. nothing new. I but, think you know, Ken, these, Ken... these people deserve, I gotta say, these people deserve yeah. to be paid with their, with their worth. So. Oh yeah, definitely. I was just going to say, I, even on Jedi, I think it was Jedi, Ken Ralston even designed like a t-shirt kind of saying, you know, I think, it was like Darth Vader looking tired and it said like, you know, working on Sundays or the late crew or something. I can't remember the details, but, you know, it seems to me they injected a bit of humor into that because they knew they had to do it. So they might as well make it funny, you know. Um, yeah, I, I heard um, some reviews of, of uh, the new Flash movie saying some of the VFX are appalling and you hear reviews going, oh, some of the VFX are just terrible. And what they don't acknowledge is those VFX artists might have had a week to do that shot. Right. Yeah, that might that may have changed a week before. Yeah. You, you always hear the story about uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture being delivered wet because yeah. those effect shots. And, and obviously they've done re-edit after re-edit of that film because they used all of the effects footage. Mm. But in the digital age, you're, you're right. The entire thing could have been rewritten a week before. Yeah, yeah. Really. And from what I gather, the the kind of current pipeline for getting an effects house to do work on your movie is you say, right, we need 1,400 shots of this movie. And then they all pitch and they all price up. And what they don't price up is the fact that of those 1,400 shots, one might take six months, another one might take two days. Mm -hmm. So there's not actually a proper sort of exchange. There's no sort of currency held within those shots uh, in terms of the labor that it's going to take. So it, it feels to me like... You know, back then in the era of Return of the Jedi, yes, people were under pressure, but it was a very small world, the visual right. effects world. It's opened up so much now. I mean, you just look on the credits these days and you'll see a thousand names go by with VFX artists on it. Um, it feels to me like something needs to be done to kind of work on that model of how houses pitch for a job and how work is rewarded because they're, they're amazing artists um, out there. And I've been fortunate to speak to many of them and it really feels like, um, in many ways, they're not being used, utilized, and they're not being. Maybe there's too much turnover now because of because of people, you know, having to crash and burn age thirty five because they just can't cope with the job anymore. So I think it's down to the effects houses now to kind of help look after these people. And from what I'm hearing, from when I'm speaking to people at ILM now, that does seem to be happening. You know, people are able to have kids now and still work for an effects house. So. There are there are improvements, but there's always room for more. I'm sure. Right, and I wonder how much of it is uh, because the landscape has widened. Because as we're talking mm -hmm. about with Return of the Jedi, ILM was was the king of the hill at the at the time. Yeah. We're uh, we're a few years away. By the late '80s, everybody wants ILM to the point where you know they work on Indiana Jones and Last Crusade, so they don't work on Star Trek V, and Star Trek V has appalling effects because they can't use ILM. <laughs> I think one of the problems we might have today is. Right. When you go to see a Star Wars film or a Marvel film, there's six, seven different effects houses. So the work is being parceled out. But what people are not talking about is that like any other client services industry, the, as they're putting in bids, a lot of it is trying to underbid yes. the next person. And yeah. so much of it is about uh, let's make it cheaper. Um, I'm in advertising as my day job. And one of the stories we've been hearing a long time was that there was a major agency that got the McDonald's uh, – account in chicago and they built an entire agency for it but then they found out because they had underbid everyone else they couldn't actually afford to get the work done so uh whenever i hear stories like this like the spider-verse story that's come out or some of the marvel people have been 
asked to do multiple TV series and movies at the same time, and mm-hmm. they're being stretched thin. I think, well, you know, w- did they under budget it just to win against another effects house? Mm-hmm. And back back when we we're talking about, there were so few effects houses, and ILM was really the only one that people knew their name. Yeah, well, ILM was ke- kind of kept going by. George allowing his friends to use the effects house because he's got this huge, this fantastic team of people, you know, some of whom after Star Wars went on to Battlestar Galactica and had to be kind of dragged back for em- for Empire and then moved north. Yeah, George didn't uh, like Battlestar, right? No, no. I mean, rightly so. It was, you know, let's face it, it was it was capitalizing on the popularity. Yeah. But, um, you know, so you had this group of artists and to keep them in employment, they would have to work on movies in between the Star Wars movies. And then after the Star Wars movies, they'd reached to a point where they had so much infrastructure, so much equipment, they could carry on as a as an ongoing concern and, you know, have those milestones like they had with Willow and Jurassic Park and, and other movies like that. And um, I've, I feel really fortunate to have spoken to a lot of those artists who were there from back in the day and had amazing careers and some have left and gone to other effects houses. You know, I spoke to Ken Ralston who went and worked as creative advisor or something for Sony pictures. I think he he still does that work. And of course, Dennis Murin stayed at ILM, but it's great to see, you know, when you're doing research for a book like this, just how hands-on all of this stuff was. And that's not to take anything away from computer visual artists, you know, effects artists, because they still have to do the work. The computer is not a magic tool. Well, AI, we could question that. Um, so it's great to you know look back at a lot of those old documentaries and those old clippings from newspapers and magazines that we've gone through to to, to see how how you know this comes from a real kind of tangible world, um, and it's a world that I'm permanently fascinated with. I, I I just want to go and make another of these books. In fact, we are. Justin, do you want to pick up on this? <laughs> Um, well, we're doing a we're doing a revised version of the Empire book, actually. Um, mm. Once once we got done with the Jedi book, you know, it just it came together so well visually and just everything. And working with Jamie was a great time, and we worked very well together. And so I thought, you know, I want to this. I want my Empire book to be at this level, basically. And so we're going to go back. We're actually doing it now. We're doing an expanded revised version of the Empire book. Um, which is going to have, you know, we're, we're looking for more dates. We're looking for more call sheets. We're looking for more information. We're going to have more exclusives like the Jedi book does as far as interviews with, you know, cast or crew members. And, you know, that is a, another labor of love, you know, and, and these books are, cause we're all doing, we're doing this stuff during our, you know, we have day jobs just like you do. And most people do where it's just, this is something we do for fun because we enjoy it. We love star Wars and we love being creative. And so, you know, it's something that you kind of take your time with and, and you do it when you when you have time for it, you know, and, and, you know, we don't have a deadline for it yet, but it's definitely something that we're excited about to re-release that book uh, to match the quality of the Jedi book. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the Empire book. Obviously, I created it, but <laughs> just comparing the two, if you were to look at them side by side, there's definitely like it could use improvement, um, which is what we're going to do. And then beyond that, you know, we've talked about doing other projects and we eventually want to do one for Star Wars. Um, that is going to take a lot of time because Star Wars is such a huge movie and there's and so it's much so long and it's so long ago now. And by, oh, yeah. by then, surely Lucasfilm will be begging us to finish that trilogy, Justin. So, you know, we'll, 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 yeah. we'll actually make some money at that time. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, um, I, I imagine that's going to be more archaeological than either of them. I remember... Uh, I, I guess this was uh, before Attack of the Clones came out. Lucasfilm had a traveling exhibit of the costumes. 
Mm-hmm. And I remember that, you know, the further back you went, the cheaper the costumes got. Where yeah, Amidala's gown looked looked like she Natalie Portman was about to go to the Oscars in it. Yeah. And Han Solo's vest, you could see through it. <laughs> yeah, could, yeah. Well, through it. So I imagine finding the call sheets, finding all yeah. of that information is yeah. going to be yellow and brittle by the time you get there. Well, but, you know, God bless the fans. They they collect yeah. this stuff. They keep this stuff. They preserve this stuff. And I really feel, you know, Lucasfilm obviously does its own curating and collecting of of the past but fans are really adamant about holding on to things and you know it's not and it's not just the movies too like we we go into advertising we go into promotional campaigns we go into like home video releases i mean the books span not just you know the the time of the film it goes beyond that up until you know modern times so we're Mm -hmm. we're collecting information from like the the 80s the 90s the 2000s all the way up to basically you know right now and so, you know, it's it's it really gives you a broad view of of, you know, the longevity of these movies, you know, and it's it's just if you look at it like it was a flat line, like it was a, you know, a graph, you would see it kind of ramp up for the creation of the films. And the Empire is the same way as Jedi. You'll see it ramp up and all these dates come in the book and then it starts to ramp down as, as the film kind of goes away. And then like when the special editions came out, you see everything kind of ramp up again as far as promotion and, and you know, the release of the films. And then it kind of wanes again. And then there's like a lull, you know, like from the late 90s, the wilderness years, yeah. 2000s. Yeah. <laughs> well, all that stuff. And then, you know, it starts to ramp up again as you have the mm-hmm. 40th anniversary. So it's this this kind of like hills and valleys of of the history of these films. And it's it's kind of fascinating in that regard, just to kind of see it spread out, you know, from beginning to end and just kind of see the impact that these films have had, not only on culture, but just on on people like us. You know, it's like. 40 years later, we're still talking about this stuff, you know, and we're still as passionate about it. We still love it, you know, and it's yep. like, there's not a lot of movies that you can, that, that can be said. I mean, you know, you could probably count on, you know, both hands, how many of those movies compared to what were released in the eighties mm-hmm. and seventies, like what people are still talking about and still passionate about, you know, and, and are still interested in. And Star Wars is just, to me, it's a new mythology and that's why it's lasted. And that's why it's still so prevalent and so profound to people is because it really was a new mythology at the time. There was nothing like it when it came out. And it just, I think it touched something in all of us who were kids at the time that really, you know, hit something in us that we were lack, that was lacking in, in our society at the time. It was just this mythology of good versus evil and, and just heroes and, you know, the swashbuckling and all that stuff. So I don't know. There's just something about Star Wars, I think, that permeates people's soul, if you will. And it just really sticks with people who grew up in that time. And, you know, it's just we kind of I think our book really showcases pieces and aspects of that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And it just really brings you back to that time. You know, they're talking about, you know, telexes, you know, communicating with each other. You know, there was no email. There was no cell phones at this time. It was very you know, we would look at it today as kind of archaic in how they communicated and got things done, you know, and landlines. And it's just, it was a very different era, a very different world. And you kind of really get that sense as you're reading through the book and you're doing the research even, and you're just seeing how making these movies is such a different process then than it is now. And it's really fascinating. And it is a bit of, a, you know, a st- historical document. I mean, even what mm-hmm. Jamie's doing with his podcasts you know it's like these people are getting older you know they're they're going to start passing away soon these people who actually worked on the films and so we're doing our best to kind of preserve all this information and 
that's really what empire was for me too is i wanted to preserve this stuff before people started dying and it just gets lost to history you know mm-hmm. and i really liked that about what jamie's doing with his podcast is because he's interviewing these people and really getting stories and information that is not publicly available. That's not really out there that eventually will just be gone, you know, Mm -hmm. and it's just, I love the preservation of history in that regard, you know, what we've done and continue to do. Yeah. One of the things I've thought about since we've worked on this book together is maybe releasing some of my interviews in a book form as well, like the entire interview, because, you know, a podcast is only there as long as you pay your monthly bill to to have it hosted right (laughs) whereas a book you know once it's on a shelf even if somebody gives it away it might end up in a thrift store you know or a charity shop or a a, you know a a garage sale or something so the book kind of exists forever and I kind of like the idea of some of those stories that I haven't heard anywhere else you know people like Nilo Rodis Jamiro who I spoke to telling me things about blowing up the Howard the Duck head you know and (laughs) having to tell his team that he'd done that and then trying to get George Lucas to push him around so that his team would think he was under pressure. And, um, you know, and then they began to work for him. Stories like that, that, you know, you just don't hear anywhere else. So I'm thinking about maybe doing that at some point. Um, Spurred on by by Justin, um, who's done such a great book, to uh, done such a great job, sorry, to, to put this book together. You know, I did feel at times that I was just the kind of, you know, enthusiastic spaniel kind of jumping up on the sofa going i found another date i found another date i found another date um and justin has has been really fantastic and patient and uh, just a wonderful curator putting this all together and um you know i'd love him to be the editor of that book if i managed to to get that out there so um i think that's what's great about star wars fans is that there's enough room for all of us to make our own project you know and so many of us kind of want to give back to to that world that that we've we've loved for so long i can't tell you how many times i've thought star wars isn't for me anymore i've grown out of it you know i i saw that i wasn't a big fan of the last jedi and i remember just saying i can it's I, it's moved on to the new generation i saw my kids enjoying those movies and then i just go back to it every time you know i just i revisit these movies every time um i would say that i've probably got 500 books maybe 800 books in this house right now if i count all my daughters and my wife's books um, I would say of mine, I probably don't look at eighty percent of them, and that eighty percent are not Star Wars books. The rest I still look at. Um, so it yeah, does I mean have, it... I have a theory that you, people buy books uh, only twenty percent to read them. It's it's mainly to look at them every day and walk mm-hmm. by and go, "I'm a person that owns that kind of book." Well, luckily our book is also beautiful. You know, my friend Pete Starling did the the cover for it, and. Uh, he wouldn't take any payment, so I, I got him a Black Series Darth Vader helmet, which I delivered to him and his son this morning, which was good fun. Um, and it looks great, you know, it's got, uh, it looks like it's of the time um, as well. It, it, it kind of sits side by side with the Art of Return of the Jedi or the Peacher book. It's bigger than that. You know, it's quite a big book, actually. Um, I was quite surprised when I got it in my hands because it's, it's one thing to look at it online when you're working on it, um, on the software, but to actually have it in your hands is, is very different. But yeah, I want people to kind of look at it and go, I'd love it if we could get it in bookstores at some point because I want people to go, well, that, I, how come I didn't know about that book? You know, yeah, it looks like it's from it's Batman. It's only available on Amazon. Yes, it is only available on Amazon. You know, we're kind of restricted in many ways. or Basically, we're using the platform of Amazon to enable us to get the book into multiple regions. So right now it's in UK, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Sweden, Japan, Australia, uh, Canada, USA. 
and you know they take a huge cut they do take a massive cut um but their infrastructure allows us to sell more copies is is the plan um you know we've sold copies to germany and to sweden and to the us uh, uk and us are kind of battling out on our stats at the moment um and uh amazon you know they do a good job we've got the hardback version we have the paperback version as well so there's two different price points um, we did have a black and white version with a color cover for a while, but it was just confusing the customers, I think. Yeah. Um, and if you're a Prime member right now, there is a reduction on the book on in both the US and the UK, we know for sure. They they drive that reduction in price. We still get our same amount of the full price cut, but they do it to drive sales. If they see something kind of taking off a little bit, and, you know, we've sold a few hundred copies now, they kind of reduce the price to drive that. You know, it's a wonderful capitalist model that they have there. Yeah. That I always hoping... wonder about that because things are yeah. on sale for like a week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they're not on sale anywhere else. And I'm like, is this on clearance or is they just... <laughs> we're, we're hoping to capitalize on whatever they decide to do. Um, you know, it's been great that it got reduced to like 20, 20 bucks and 20 pounds. And I was able to go online and say to people, look, get it now because this is this is not going to yeah. get any cheaper than this. Um I've bought a few copies myself as well to give to people and to I'm going to take some to some film fairs here in in London in the summer um, and just try and get the word out because that's the other thing you know we've made this book not with the intention of really making money it's a it's a passion project and the profit margin is so small but what we do want to do is get it out to as many people as possible because we know there are so many people like us that would want to read a book like this right now I want to go back you mentioned a couple of times about modern star wars because we've talked so much about this is the way they made films in the early 80s and this is how different it is and star wars was so important to our generation uh, uh how how do you feel about where star wars has gone because for so long for our generation it was these three films and these three films had this uh impact on our childhood going forward but then as we became young men there were the prequels that felt like mm, they were for us they were for another generation and now disney has gone I would say in several uh, several different directions with it. I mean, everything yeah. from from you know an adult uh, series of Andor to um, to fan service of Book of Boba Fett to um, to a polarizing Last Jedi and Rise of Skywalker. Uh, how do you two feel about Star Wars now? I think for me, it's it's there's there's star wars for everybody at this point like you said you know it's just it kind of it's went in all directions and i you know on some level maybe they're just trying to cover all their bases but um star wars is such a huge phenomenon and it continues to be that i think there's enough room for it to have all those different facets you know what i mean you do have something like andor which is really geared towards adult storytelling and you know it's just something that you I kind of always wanted to see in Star Wars was just this really gritty, you know, adult oriented story of, you know, the rebels, you know, which you're getting in, in the dark side of that. Um, not literally the dark side of the force, but I mean, just like the dark side of, of what they had to do to get to that point, you know, of like defeating the empire. And it's like, it's not all like, Hey, we're the good guys. And, you know, we're playing with Ewoks. It's like, you know, they had to do their, get their hands dirty as well to defeat this empire and seeing something like that, I think is really great. But then you see something like, you know, like the book or not the book of, well, the book of Boba Fett was like hit or miss for me. I was like, it was good and bad, 
But then you've got something like Obi-Wan, which I really did not like. And I thought that was definitely not for me. I know it was very nostalgic for a lot of people, but I, there's something about it I just did not like. But then I love The Mandalorian. So it's like there's enough Star Wars that even if you don't like everything, I'm sure there's something that you like. And that's how it is for me, where I just kind of ignore the stuff that I don't like. You know, for a while when Last Jedi came out, I was I was appalled. I was like, you know, that's not my Luke Skywalker, that kind of stuff. And I just kind of got old and I was just like, who cares? Like, why did like because there's so much more Star Wars now? I'm just like, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna spend my time hating something. It's just like you just love what you love and then whatever you don't like, just ignore it. Something else will come along eventually. So for me, it's just there's enough out there. And I really think John Favreau and Dave Filoni are doing a good job as as far as kind of keeping that torch going of the original feel of Star Wars, you know, and, and they dabble into other areas and, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But I think for the most part, those first two seasons of The Mandalorian were really great and really reinvigorated again my love of star Wars. And, you know, from there, it's just kind of, it, it's the hit or miss thing. I'm really looking forward to the Ahsoka series. Cause I'm really a fan of Thrawn, you know, in the nineties, when the, the Thrawn trilogy came out, I mean, that was huge for all of us. Yeah. The, the heir to the empire series. I mean, for them to revisit all that, I think is great, you know, and, and that kind of goes back to the dark times when there wasn't a lot of star Wars, but just really, you know, it's about good storytelling. And, and they, like I said, they don't always hit the mark, but I think they do enough that I'm still vested. I'm still interested and I'm, I'm still in love with star Wars, you know, even beyond just the original trilogy. So yeah, that's, that's my take on it. Yeah. I would, I would agree with uh, all of that. And I, the only addition I would make is that, you know, there's this perception now that our oh, Star Wars is oversaturated and they're just doing it to make money. Let's, let's not, be naive here George was there to make money you know he made this amazing movie in 77 and it had this enormous cultural impact that went beyond anything he could ever have imagined Um, but that's not to say that he wasn't doing it to make money and you know of course he reinvested all of his money to make Empire and then to make Jedi Um, and he created this Empire which he then sold for what 4.4 billion or whatever it was Disney have to ensure they're going to make that money back, you know, and one of the ways of making it back is capitalizing on, on, you know, the world of Star Wars. And many people thought in 83, it's a bad decision not to have more Star Wars, you know, um, well, it's at fever pitch right now. You can you imagine a studio doing that today, having a movie that was at number one for however many weeks and was only knocked off the charts briefly by, I think, uh, by Jaws 3D and then uh what else was it, it was superman, superman one of the, two superman two superman three um but uh yeah i th- i think i i loved like justin i loved mandalorian season one and two obi-wan i didn't enjoy but there was a couple of scenes in it where i just thought oh the people i know that love the prequels yeah they're loving this they're getting their moment you know and i and that's one of the things about you know i don't call myself a star wars fan i'm a, a fan of some star wars you know and a percentage that percentage is getting smaller and smaller but one of the things I always pride myself on is I never take away other people's joy of anything they like Star yeah. Wars or otherwise you know I don't I didn't like The Last Jedi I came out of that saying well, what the heck did I just see um, but then I know people that love that movie and they love it for their reasons and that's the great thing about cinema to me is that we take in with us you know what we've had what we've learned before from other movies and from other things that have impacted us culturally 
So we all come from a different standpoint. And, you know, those original films were at exactly the right time for me. The prequels have been at exactly the right time for some people, as has the sequel trilogy and now the new TV series as well. And just to back up what Justin was saying about Andor, you know, great for us older uh, fans to get something that is, you know, uh, a nicer pace and is kind of drawn out over a longer period and has this real strong characters and amazing locations, amazing work on that um, on that uh, series. And I'm so looking forward to season two. The rest I'm not really interested in. I'd watch Ahsoka. I think I'd probably watch Ahsoka. Um, Mandalorian, I think, kind of finished itself in many ways in 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 season three um but i can't um stop admiring the work that that john and and dave are doing there um at lucasfilm because they're doing it with the best of intentions they are fans like us and they're they're trying to work out what works best and um yeah i was fortunate enough to be at celebration when they were both there and i could see how emotional they were getting when all the fans were cheering and clapping them on and off the stage and um, it was great to see that there's so many people that can love Star Wars. And as Justin said, there's room for everybody. Right. Well, if uh, this conversation is an indication of the amount of knowledge you both have in this book, it'll be well worth getting. As, as we've said, <laughs> it's available on Amazon now. And uh, apparently it's available at an affordable price on Amazon. It so it's is. a good time to get it. Um, but Jamie, I, uh, Wanted to tell us a little bit more about the Filmy Mentories podcast. I know it's uh, it's been running for a couple of years now. Yeah, so during lockdown, like a lot of people, I lost all of my work. I work in live TV, uh, mainly sport, um, and all sport kind of disappeared. And I thought, wow, now's the time to do this podcast that I've been thinking about for some years. Because when I did some of my Filmy Mentory full-length documentaries, I thought I should start interviewing people myself. And I did that with, with the Jaws one and with the Raiders of the Lost Art one. And I had the few of these interviews that I'd only use snippets from. And I thought, oh, maybe I can just churn some of those out. And then I thought maybe I'll do 10 episodes. And I spoke to Tim Rose. And then I spoke to Paul Hirsch, the editor from Star Wars and Empire. And then I, you know, the ball started rolling then. And people were saying, oh, what about this guy? I know this person. Here's an email address. And eventually uh, I got to the point now where I'm just about to put the 80th episode out. Um, so I do two per month and a few bonuses here and there. And I've now made a connection with the people at ILM. So I'm, you know, having suggestions sent to me as well. I've recently been put on Apple's kind of journalist list. So I managed to interview the editor of the new Michael J. Fox documentary still, um, which is really great. I loved it. And it was great to to talk to Michael Hart, the, the editor. So it feels like there's a real momentum sort of going with this. And, you know, one of the things I wanted to do with the book as well in relation to the podcast was kind of bring the podcast into the printed form as well. So it kind of people look at it and go, oh, I didn't know there was a podcast. I'll listen to the podcast or they listen to the podcast and say, oh, I didn't know there was a book. And that's not me being, you know, wanting to cover all bases as a as a, you know, a nightmare capitalist. I'm not here to make money. I don't make money. I just about pay the bills with with all of the hosting and everything else on the podcast. But what it does give me is it gives me um you know, it's almost like a a separate kind of social life. I get to speak to these people who are heroes of mine and make friendships with them. You know, I get emails from Walter Murch, the, the legendary Walter Murch. I'm being sent something from Nilo Rodis Jamiro, whose name I've mentioned a couple of times now. I've created relationships with these people. And for me, that's what it's about. It's about making connections, um, not in that kind of business. I need to mingle and make connections way, but just making a connection with these people whose work. I love so much. And um, 
yeah, I'm going to continue doing it until I stop enjoying it. Well, speaking about connecting, uh, I know the Thule Ministries has a social media presence. Uh, Justin, how do people reach you online? Um, for me, it's really simple stuff. But if you go to JediTimeline.com, it has all of our social media links. You know, I'm on Twitter at TESB Timeline, which obviously was the Empire Strikes Back timeline when that came out. And I'm just kind of stuck with it. <laughs> and um, so that's my Twitter. You know, you just look up my name. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram. Um, no, nothing special there. Just basically promoting the book and talking about, you know, hey, I went to do watch this movie or something, you know. But if you go to Jedi Timeline, it has all the information about the book, where you can buy it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, you know, just all of our socials. And then obviously Jamie has all of his socials. Justin is basically the Yoda of this situation and, and I'm the perky Luke Skywalker <laughs> going, come on, let's do, <laughs> what, what can we do next? Um, no, it's, no, it's great. Been, yeah. Well, okay. Let's stick with that then. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, it is, but no, go ahead and, and tell them where to find you, Jamie. Yeah. So I'm on uh, at Jamie SWB, which like Justin, I, I'm stuck with. Uh, it was Jamie Star Wars Begins because that was the name of my Star Wars uh, filmumentary. Um, I'm on filmumentaries on Facebook and on Instagram as well and you can go to filmumentaries.com where i'll post all of those various different things um be it the book or books soon to be books the podcast the videos all of that stuff is available online still there's there's probably days worth of material um that you can watch if you and listen to if you haven't done so already my thanks to justin and jamie for coming on the show you can find return of the jedi and unauthorized timeline on amazon now if you want to find me i'm at not in my book on twitter and instagram that is the official captain comics social networking feed you can also go to our facebook page facebook.com slash comics where we post all the news that's fit to geek and we will talk to you next week